Well, welcome everyone to Bible class this morning as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians. We welcome our KFUO audience and we will be beginning at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 12. Verse 12. All things are permissible to me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are permissible to me, but I will not be overpowered by them. All right, what's he saying? As a Christian, we have Christian freedom. Okay? Now that's not freedom to sin, but it's freedom where we don't have to worry about certain things. So you are free to have an alcoholic drink. You are free to dance. You are free to eat, as Paul said, food offered to idols. But he says it may not be beneficial. It may, depending on who you're with, hurt their faith, offend them. So while he can do it under the freedom of the gospel, he doesn't if it doesn't benefit everybody. Now, he's free to do these things, but he says he won't be overpowered by them. In other words, they won't become the most important things in his life. And then he, he just goes off, and, and, and I'll tell you why we think he's doing this. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach for food but God will destroy them and it. Now, why suddenly this reference to food? Well, certainly all things are permissible. You can see that. But there is a real problem in Corinth with immorality. Rampant. It was part of the culture that men could have sex with multiple women and with boys. It was part of the culture. So much part of the culture that we think here, those who want to continue in immorality likened it to eating a meal. Same thing. What Paul is saying is, you can let food overpower you. It becomes your reason to live. You could do the same thing with immorality. But God will destroy both. 
And the reason we think he's saying it this way is because what he starts in on now. The body is not for fornication, not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, what he's embarking on here is a discussion of how important the Christians need to view their bodies, as opposed to the religions that they were, they were a part of in Corinth. Because all those other religions besides Christianity said when you die, the body is evil and stays here. It's destroyed. The Christian faith is entirely different. There is the resurrection of the body. The body is saved and redeemed just like the soul. You are redeemed by Jesus Christ, body and soul. You will be raised body and soul. How do we know this? When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the body did not stay. And when he appeared to his disciples in the upper room, they were able to see his glorified body with the marks in hands and feet. So it is very important for the Christian to realize that the body is redeemed too. God raised the Lord. And from the dead, and he will raise you through his power. The body is going to be resurrected. And then he makes his point. You've got all this rampant immorality. Do you not know that our bodies are a member of Christ? are a member of Christ. Therefore, do you raise up a member of Christ and make it a member of a prostitute? By no means, he says. So in other words, when you have a situation of fornicate, when you have men with prostitutes, they are uniting their bodies to them when they are in fact united as members of Christ. And what Paul is saying is, you can't have it both ways, okay? Can't have it both ways. Now, um, so, I lost my place here. All right. 
So, you, um, I'm in the wrong book. This phone is killing me. Okay. All right. So you're not going to make yourself a member with a prostitute if you're at the same time a member of Jesus Christ. Then he says again, do you not know that the one who joins himself to a, prophet, uh, to a uh, prostitute is one body? In other words, you have united and you are one body. The word joined here is very, very descriptive. It means you're cemented to her or you're glued to her. That's what the word means. You're cemented, joined, glued to the prostitute. Okay? And then he quotes from Genesis, for it is said the two will become one flesh. Now that is the description of what happens in marriage, all right? In marriage. But it also happens anytime there are sexual relations with someone beside your spouse. You have joined and become one with them. And he's warning against that. The one who is joined to the Lord is in the spirit. Flee fornication. All sin which a man does is outside his body or outside the body. Okay, but the one who fornicates sins against his own body. All right, so what he's saying is, right here, all other sins are outside your body. But when you commit sexual sins, they are against your own body. This is why we believe, on the basis of this, that people who commit sexual sins have a much worse time dealing with them because they're so personal. They have a hard time accepting absolution because these kinds of sins are so personal against your own body. And that's what Paul is saying here. Beware of this. It's against your own body. For do you not know that our bodies, our temple, of the Holy Spirit in you, which you uh, have 
from God. You are not your own. You are not your own. Now he's talking about the Christian. The Christian is a member of Jesus Christ. And the Christian is joined to God, not evil, not a prostitute. He's joined to God. Now he's called a temple of God. Your bodies are a temple of God where the Holy Spirit dwells. Okay? The Holy Spirit dwells in you. And all of this emphasizes more and more, why do you think you can join yourself to a prostitute when you are a member of Christ and a temple of the Holy Spirit, which, has God, which God has given you? Now this brings up so let's finish. Uh, you were, for you were bought with a price. Glorify God in. Uh, we glorify God in. Glorify God in our, in your bodies. In other words, the body is also to glorify God. It's also to glorify God. Now, there's something very interesting here that, that many have talked about. Sex education, okay? And I'm not talking about the junk that goes on in the schools, public schools. I'm talking about basic Christian sex education. And it shouldn't start with mommy and daddy. Where it starts is to teach the child, you are a member of Christ and a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's where sex education will start. So that they know who they are in Jesus Christ. Who they are in Jesus Christ. You were bought with a price, the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're supposed to glorify God in our whole being, body and soul. Body and soul. All right. Questions? Remember, we're on the radio. Questions? Yes? Well, in that sense, yes. Uh, uh, you're, you're sinning against the creation that God made. But the sexual side of things is so personal that uh, it doesn't easily 
get forgotten. You can forget gluttony. Now, if you kill yourself, that's... But, that's what Paul's saying. It is not easily dealt with on a personal basis. And I've seen this as a pastor, that some will, one will confess this kind of sin. But then they're back in three weeks because it's still troubling me. I haven't seen that with gluttony. <laughs> they either keep eating or, or uh, uh, they, they get help. But once the sexual sin is done, it's hard to forget. That's what I'm saying. That's what Paul's saying. Yeah. Other questions? Yeah, but That, that is correct. Uh, it, it undermines it um, because your relationship with God is so holistic. Uh, your whole being is now God's because you were bought with a price. You belong to him. When you join yourself to a prostitute, that's a sin against God because you're his. There's always an attempt by Christians to compartmentalize their Christian lives. And that is, they can be a Christian but they have one hidden room in the back of the house where they still do what they want. And they think somehow that that's okay. But you can't, this is saying you can't compartmentalize it because your whole being belongs to God. Your whole being belongs to God. All right, ready to move on? Chapter 7, we now begin to see the phrase, now concerning what you wrote. This, these issues that we're now going to confront are issues that the uh, Corinthian church had written to the Apostle Paul about, delivered by three guys, Fortunatus, uh, I, I can't remember at the moment. These three guys delivered this letter and they, it deals with certain things. 
And Paul is now going to take those things up um, one at a time. Now, the first thing that it says is, it is not good for a man to touch a woman. Now, it's actually, the word is sexual intercourse, to have sexual intercourse with a woman. We don't believe that is Paul speaking. We believe that is a quotation from the letter that he was written. Some of your translations might have it in quotation marks. Okay, do they? Yeah. Paul didn't say that. He's responding to that. All right? Responding to that. And he refutes it. Because of evil, each man must have a wife for himself. And each uh, woman uh, must have a man for herself. In other words, he's upholding marriage. Okay? And the man should give the uh, duty to the wife, just as the wife to the man. In other words, man and woman in marriage should freely give of themselves sexually. Freely give. Okay. Freely give. No, I don't use that passage in premarital counseling with two 21-year-olds. They don't need that. Who needs a reminder are married couples. Okay? Freely. And then it says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the man. And so the man does not have authority over his own body, but the woman, okay? So there is to be a free exchange of love between man and woman to fulfill their sexual needs, okay? Now, uh, then it says, uh, do not withhold yourselves or deprive one another except during, uh, by mutual agreement for a time in order that you may spend time in prayer but again come together in order that Satan will not tempt you through your lack of restraint, okay? So there is a time to restrain. It should be by mutual agreement. It should be for a short time. And it should be for a spiritual purpose. 
but then come back together again because you are easily tempted. That's what it's saying, because you're easily tempted. Now, there were, in the rabbinical teachings, some directives of how long couples could stay apart. One week, two weeks, never more than that. Never more than that. That's Paul, probably what Paul has in mind. I wish that all men would be as I am. But each has his own gift or grace from God. One another, one this, one that. Okay, what Paul is saying is, Paul is saying it's better from his point of view to be unmarried. That's what he's saying. He's saying, he does not forbid marriage, he does not say it's sin. But for him, but notice what he says, everybody doesn't have that gift. Everybody doesn't have that gift. He gives to one, one way, he gives to another, another way. But, Everybody has their own gift and should do what they need to do. Marry, stay unmarried. But if you marry, you freely give of your love to one another. Okay? All right. I'm sure none of you have questions about that. All right, verse 8. This better be about Greek, bud. <laughs> I, I just noticed there's nothing particularly uh, spiritual or, or oriented. Like, I mean, the past paragraph was all about God and you and your body. Yeah. Here, it seems like very practical advice. It's very practical advice, and um, I, I'm sure because of the section we just dealt with in 1 Corinthians 6, that the whole relationship, since men could not be immoral, as their cultural said, I'm sure then they needed advice about what should marriage be like, okay? And Paul is answering this practical question, very practical question, because they were uninformed. They had grown up in a culture where it was okay, the opposite. Now. He picks up another group of people. I say to the unmarried and to the widow, 
it is good for them if they remain as they are. Okay. Now, the word unmarried is probably translated in your translations as widower. Any of them have widower? Okay. Unmarried. This has led to all kinds of speculation. We know that Paul is not married now. Was he ever? By his use of the term unmarried, which he is now, was Paul ever married? We don't know anything about that, and it's total speculation. But I just want you to know that some read into that, that he might have been married at one time. We, we don't think so, but just know that's the case. But if you do not have self-control, marry, for it is better to marry than to burn, okay? If you don't have the self-control, then by all means marry, because it is better for you to marry than to burn with sexual passion all the time. It's better. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Um, now, to those, to those that marry, I do not say, but the Lord says, um, a woman should not divorce the husband. Okay. If they separate, she is to remain unmarried or reconcile with her husband. Okay. The rule was in Jewish law, a woman could never initiate divorce proceedings. It had to be the man. So this is why it's being said. Now, this comes up all the time. Pastors deal with it all the time. In the cases of remarriage. And how do we deal with that? Well, we ask scriptural questions. First question. Has your spouse committed adultery? Because the scripture says that's a reason. Yes or no? Second, we're going to get to this. Is your spouse initiating the divorce and they are an unbeliever? Yes or no? Has your spouse remarried? Yes or no? If I were to contact your spouse, 
is there any possibility we could reconcile this marriage? Those are the four questions that have to be dealt with. Okay? That have to be dealt with. So, trying to put this into practice, the first goal is to reconcile it. Then it says the man should not put away his wife. Okay, so this goes both ways. Now, then we get to that second case that I was talking about. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, if a brother has an unbelieving wife and she mutually agrees to dwell with him, then do not send her away. If a wife has an unbelieving husband and he mutually agrees to live with her, do not send away the husband. Okay? Now, this would have been an obvious problem in Corinth. Members of the church were married to people that still worshipped idols. Still worshipped idols. And there would have been numerous cases like that. Paul says, do not divorce them if they mutually agree to stay married. But then he goes a step farther. He says, for the man, unbelieving husband, is sanctified in his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified in her husband. Okay? Now, what's he saying here? He's not saying they're saved. He's not saying that. What he's saying is they're sanctified in the sense that if the believing wife or husband act as true Christians and that environment is in the home, it may rub off on the unbelieving partner so they can't be saved. Or so they will come to the faith. That's the meaning of the word sanctified there. The presence of the believer and their influence can help the unbeliever come to faith. That's what's being said. It goes even further. Because if that's not the case, then their children um, are unclean. 
but now they are holy. In other words, if an unbelieving spouse marries a believer and they have children, the children are again sanctified holy because of the believing partner. The implication is here that they're probably baptized, okay? They're probably baptized. But they are not unclean. Now here comes the tough part. If the unbelieving separates, let them be separated. The brothers and sisters, the brother and sister are not bound in such things, for God has called them in peace. All right. Let's, let's try to make sense out of this. What it's saying is, if there's a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse, and the unbelieving spouse wants a divorce, demands a divorce, leaves or deserts, rather than fight the battle, the believing spouse is okay to just let it go. Because they've been called to peace. Not a contentious relationship for the rest of their life, but they've been called to peace. That's why I asked the second question. Is your spouse a believer or an unbeliever? And have they initiated this? Right here, Paul is saying to keep the peace. Then he asked two questions. Four, does the wife know if she will save her husband? Or does the husband know that he will save the wife. In other words, the reason that you would stay with the person is to try to sanctify them so that at some point they will be saved. Paul's saying, you don't know that. You don't know that. So you have to weigh that because there's no guarantee that's going to happen. No guarantee that's going to happen. So, he deals with another issue that they're obviously having in uh, Corinth. All right. Then um, he's going to deal with some other things here. Um, he basically says this, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned or shared to him and which, and which the Lord has called him. Now, basically here, with, we're dealing with the whole matter of your station in life. 
you are to remain in the station in which you were called. So if you were called to faith in Jesus Christ when you were married, stay married. If you were called to faith in Jesus Christ when you weren't, you don't have to stay that way, but it's fine to be unmarried. And he goes through all kinds of lists of these because he wants people to know that someone's station in life does not make them better or worse in the eyes of God. Does not make them better or worse in the eyes of God. And he says, uh, walk in that, okay? Walk in your station in life. And I instruct all, uh, or those in all the churches of this. Walk in the station you were called, okay? If circumcised when you were called, do not seek uncircumcision. In, if you were called in uncircumcised, do not be circumcised. For circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keep the commands of God. So that was big. Okay? If you were called when you were circumcised, don't try to be uncircumcised. There was a surgery, folks, that many Jews underwent to try to undo circumcision. That's what he's speaking of. But if you're uncircumcised, don't worry about it. You don't have to be circumcised. In other words, the circumcised and the uncircumcised, neither one of them has an advantage before God. Neither one of them has an advantage before God. Okay? Each in the calling in which they were called, let them remain in this. Then he deals with another category. If you were called when you were a slave, okay? You were called when you were a slave. Do not let it concern you. Do not let it worry you. Because you were called as a slave does not mean in any way, shape, or form that you are inferior in the eyes of God to a free man. It's not the case. In other words, he's getting rid of all the divisions. Okay? All the divisions. Don't be concerned about it. Now, he does say, if you can gain your freedom, take the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free 
when called, is a slave of Christ. Okay? Now he's applying spiritual things. If you were a slave, God now calls you a free man in Christ. If you are a free man, you're now a slave in Christ. Okay? You're now a slave in Christ. As Luther would say, his saying, um, you are a subject of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and you are subject to no man. You are a subject of Jesus Christ, and therefore, you are subject to all men as a servant. You're both, okay? You're both. You were bought with a price. There's that statement again. The price of the blood of Christ. Do not become bondservants or servants of men. In other words, don't serve men. Even if you are a slave, you're serving God. Don't look at it as you're serving human. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain. So God continues to deal with uh, other categories that he's been asked about. Okay, uh, we're out of time. But we're not done, okay? There'll be another week of this. Warn the children, okay, or those with children, that we still have some more things to talk about. And then we'll move on. We may get into chapter 8 next week. All right, any final comments or questions? All right. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.